Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we're jumping into managing osteoarthritis with Professor Eva Roos from the University of Southern Denmark. I'm sure many folks in our community will know Professor Roos's landmark work with the Good Living with Osteoarthritis Denmark, or GLAD, program. She's also been heavily involved in landmark work in managing ACL injuries and other intraarticular injuries like meniscus tears. And I'm really looking forward to hearing Professor Ruse's thoughts on the links between traumatic knee injuries in young age and the longer term knee health as we see these athletes move into their middle and older age. Thanks for joining us on the JOSPT Insights podcast today, Eva. Let's start with what you see are the key ingredients to effectively managing osteoarthritis. Thank you, Claire, and uh, thank you for that question. I actually think the word managing is the right word because there is no pill to cure osteoarthritis, and I think that is important to acknowledge. So what is it that needs to be managed? Well, if we ask patients, uh, their primary concerns are pain and functional impairments. And I think it's important to remember that it's both pain and functional impairments, because in a lot of work and many studies, the focus has been on pain and not on functional impairments. How do we start to talk about this kind of treatment? What do we call these treatments and how should we be speaking about these treatments to patients and with our other colleagues? I think that we have, and I have certainly been part of that, that we have done non-surgical treatments or what some people call conservative treatment, a disservice. And we have said that they are simple. They are something you can do yourself. We have really devaluated these uh, treatments because the evidence actually shows us that they are very effective and they have few side effects. But I also think they require highly specialized clinicians uh, to be delivered. So I don't think it's simple, easy, or something that you can take off a shelf. Would you say that prescription of painkillers is easy and that no special skills or training is needed to do that? I don't think so. so. So I think we should actually change the way we speak about these things. Why should exercise be the central pillar of a rehabilitation approach to managing osteoarthritis? Well, one is, of course, that there is a massive evidence base for exercise therapy showing that it is effective. It has no side effects or no negative side effects. That's also very important because we need to compare exercise to the other available treatments. So if we look at like pharmacological painkillers, exercise is at least or more effective in relieving pain compared to pharmacological pain relievers without the side effects that we see from both NSAIDs and uh, paracetamol and not to talk about opioids. And I think the other and important reason that we also should remember that exercise is actually the only treatment that in one pill, so to say, actually addresses both aspects that are put forward by patients because it provides pain relief and it actually improves your function. 
And in, in addition to that, it is effective in, in preventing and treating a number of other chronic conditions that often co-occur in people with osteoarthritis. So what does an effective exercise program look like? What sorts of exercises, how many sessions, how do you target the different muscle groups? Can you walk us through how you would set up a program? First, I think it's important to say that based on available evidence, we know that many types of exercise work in randomized controlled trials. So I will now I will take the liberty to speak more uh, based on my own opinion, but I, I totally acknowledge that there may be different ways of doing this. We use a type of exercise that we call neuromuscular exercise that targets the joint. So the goals are really to relieve pain, joint pain, and to improve joint function. Now, I want to just come back to the concept of working with pain. And I'm wondering how you speak with patients when they're first coming into a program, because I think a lot of people might have had pain for quite some time and feel quite apprehensive about exercising with pain. How do you convince people that it is okay and they're not doing more damage to their knee? I've been working a lot uh, to address these two questions. And so have many of my PhD students who have done invaluable work in this area. To summarize what we have found over the years is that, yes, it is okay to exercise with pain. And no, you do not harm your joints when you exercise in the way that you would do for rehab or physical therapy or, or moderate exercise according to guidelines for physical activity. Because this is really a paradox for patients it seems so intuitive that when something is painful, it's dangerous. So we speak a lot about the difference between acute pain and, and how different it is with chronic pain. It has been very helpful for us when we have monitored pain before and after each exercise session during studies. And we have been able to see that it actually the, the pain flare that the exercise may spark because you're doing something you're, you're not used to doing actually decreases with the number of sessions that you do. And we also provide them with the two simple rules. The two things we tell them is that you should not have more than acceptable pain after an exercise session. And we talk about them, what is acceptable pain and how that is individual for each person. And we also tell them to, to rate the pain in the morning the morning pain should not increase from day to day. So let's say your pain is two on a visual analog scale in the morning. You go for an exercise session. It is four after an exercise session. The next morning, it should be back to two again. Then you have not done too much. The other part of this is that it's about empowering patients to develop their own um, skill set and their own way of managing because it's certainly not the case where you're going to have you wanting to see the patient every week for the rest of their lives. No, absolutely not. So, so in our exercise diary, uh, we have people rate uh, their uh, level of difficulty, that is progression, in other words, together with the pain. So most of the patients can actually see that they can do more and more without their pain increasing. In the GLAD program, we would use patient-reported outcomes. We use a whole bunch, but I would say that pain would be the, the one that I would use in the clinic. I think it is important to do testing, and we do a share stance test. 
how many times you can raise and sit down in a chair for 30 seconds. That's very quick to do. And we do a 40-meter walk test uh, to be able to assess uh, walking velocity, which is also a very handy test to, um, for people to see how they actually improve. And these tests, again, I think really get at that functional capacity that you were talking about, that we're not only interested in pain, but we're also interested in function and sitting up or standing up and sitting down from a chair and walking are going to be two really key measures there. Many worry a lot about what is the placebo component in exercise trials because we can't really, can't really design a, a comparator that would be comparable because you kind of know, because there are so many bodily responses when you exercise. But I think using objective outcomes is one way of dealing with that, because we know that patient-reported outcomes, and especially pain, are much more subjected to placebo responses compared to more hard or objective outcomes. I want to just pick up on the pain measure in the clinic. Is that pain at the time, the worst pain, night pain? What sort of, can we drill into the specifics of what you're measuring when you measure pain? We measure pain intensity here and now, but there are, of course, many, many aspects of pain. And and I think if you have a specific interest in pain, you, you can do a lot out of this and measure different facets of pain. But if I was going for one simple measure, I would use a visual analog scale and I would just measure pain intensity here and now. And I think, again, you can do that. What's the pain intensity right now? Let's do an exercise program. And what's the, or let's go through a series of exercises. What's your pain now after we've finished the exercises and see what changes, if anything? Now, we've been talking a lot about exercise, the exercise component of a program like GLAD. And I think that there's more to this than just an exercise program. What, what is the other parts of the GLAD curriculum or the curriculum that should be part of good management of osteoarthritis? I would say that based on the research that we have done over many years, I would these days if I went back to being a clinician, I've been a clinician for more than 15 years. And if I went back to that, put that hat on, I would never again enroll a patient in an exercise program without having a patient education part. It is such a commitment and it is very challenging for people who have pain and functional impairments to engage in an exercise program. So they need to know a lot more. They need to get information that addresses their fears. They need to know a lot more about the disease, how it varies, uh, what they can expect and and that it's not dangerous for them. They need to know about uh, the difference between symptoms and imaging and the poor correlation. And they need to know about the different treatment options. So they can make an informed decision that exercise therapy is actually something that they would like to engage in because it requires their them being motivated for them not only to participate in the six weeks, but actually go on. So I also think that a patient education program should be interactive in that sense, that it should be a two-way, two-way communication. It's not a leaflet. I think you need more than one session. I think it needs to be two-way communication. I think it should preferably be done in a group fashion because people like to talk to their peers and they can adjust their reference frames when they hear stories from other patients. 
I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with the young athlete who has an old knee and will have worked with with these patients or athletes before. And the best research suggests that people might start to have osteoarthritis symptoms as early as 10, 15 years after a traumatic injury like an ACL tear. So I think it's entirely possible that someone who tears their ACL at 15 might have symptoms of OA in their knee by the time they're 30. What implications do you see that this has for how we manage knee injuries across the lifespan? When I worked as a physiotherapist in, in the clinic and I treated uh, many, many, many patients with a, a torn ACL. And at that time, most of them were reconstructed. Not all, but most were. And we treated them and they all did well. Then suddenly, five years later, they called back and they had problems. That's actually how I got into osteoarthritis research. Clinicians need to be aware that osteoarthritis can develop really early and not ignore it. A lot of patients would say, no, this is a sports injury. I don't have osteoarthritis. That may be part of them not getting the right treatment. It can be burdensome to hear that you have osteoarthritis when you're maybe 30 years old and you're a, you have a young family and you have difficulty playing with the kids and you think, oh my God, this is something that only retired people get, you know, and what's going to happen with me? What's going to happen with my work situation, with my family, etc. So it can create a lot of anxiety. So I would say that, or I would think, and I actually know that a lot of patients, they don't want that diagnosis at a young age. All of the principles that we've been talking about today, and particularly around exercise and pain relief, are still going to apply irrespective of whether someone is 35 or 25 or 65. So it's almost like the good news is that we've got these really good treatment options that are available to you. And I think the other thing that young athletes or younger people are worried about is that they have to stop playing their sport and they don't want to stop being active or playing their sport when they're 25 or 30. They want to keep doing that. But the type of people that we often see would be what we would call the weekend warriors, you know. The, the people who get a little bit older, they maybe have a young family, they don't practice so much, but they still want to participate in, in games during the weekend. Those are typical patients uh, who develop symptoms and with them, I would have discussions like, uh, you know, it's like uh, it's like having a bank account. You need to put some money in your bank account before you can spend it. So you need to do some strength training or whatever it is uh, during the, the weekdays so you actually can improve uh, the likelihood that you can participate during the weekend with fewer symptoms. And it's about understanding the whole problem here and thinking about what do I need to do to make this fit in with the rest of my life? Because we see that we get younger and younger patients in the GLAD program, we have actually updated the program to also cover uh, these, um, the challenges that these younger patients um, have in front of them. I want to finish 
talking a little bit about some of the common questions that people might have when they come in to see you as a clinician with these knee injuries. And I'm thinking particularly that patients might ask for guidance about management decisions and particularly around whether to have surgery or not. So what are the key messages that you think we need to share with patients about having knee surgery? Let's start with osteoarthritis or knee arthroscopy for osteoarthritis in middle-aged people. If you have middle-aged people with knee pain, because that is why they come to see a clinician. We today know that a meniscal tear is a sign of the osteoarthritis process, an early sign. There has also been a lot of studies done in this area. I have been involved in, in some of them, but I think there are more than 16 randomized controlled trials these days that have compared arthroscopic partial meniscectomy to everything from placebo surgery to exercise therapy programs, varying um, level of uh, intensity and, and, and length. Whatever we do, there is no difference between the improvement you see from surgery and from all these other treatments. So when we summarize all the evidence, we can see that whatever we do, there is about a 30% improvement in pain relief. I would definitely try a non-surgical treatment program first. I would try an exercise program first. For the same reasons as we've all already discussed, it's that it's, um, it's non-invasive. Uh, there are no risks involved. And it actually addresses both the pain and the functional impairment that the patients have. Some people will say, well, why not do the surgery anyhow? Because you will get the same pain relief and it's much quicker. So I would say, yes, you do get the same pain relief, but you do not improve as quickly as you would like. When we ask orthopedic surgeons, they give us the answer that they think that the patients will be back in, in weeks, but we can say it takes months to get back to the activities they would like to do. And I think the other thing with having surgery is that the risks associated with surgery are always greater than an exercise program. And I don't mean for this to be bashing surgery, but it's, you know, you have an anesthetic, there's, there, there are risks of complications that you just don't have with an exercise program. So I think it's also important to consider what the side effects of different treatments are as well. So we've just talked about how you might talk about arthroscopy for uh, someone with knee pain. What about someone who might be considering total knee replacement? Total knee replacement is one of the greatest innovations in orthopedic surgery and actually in all types of surgery. It's a really good treatment, really, really improve, and it has improved the life of millions of people around the world. But it is important to consider to do the surgery on the right patient at the right time. And there are very few randomized controlled trials in this area. Actually, there is only one where we again compared people who had their knee replaced and then they got a three months um, non-surgical treatment program based on patient education and exercise and some other components after the uh, surgery. And the other group, they only got the patient education and exercise program. And then we followed them. And not surprisingly, the pain relief was greater in the group that had both treatments after a year. 
But much to our surprise, three out of four who had moderate to severe osteoarthritis, three out of four had not had their joint replaced. And they were free to contact uh, the surgeon at any time and they would have the surgery immediately. That was part of the package. That was very, very surprising to us. And actually two out of three had still not had their joints replaced after two years. So we know that with non-surgical treatment, such as patient education and exercise therapy, we can at least delay total joint replacement for a number of years. And I think that is important uh, because these joints don't last forever. They are also associated with risks. And again, it is infections, it's blood clots, and it's deaths. And they're not as rare as they are in um, neoarthroscopy. We talked about the young athletes with the old knee. So let's come back to those to the younger patients in our population. Someone who might be considering an ACL reconstruction, they've had an ACL injury and considering having surgery. What sorts of messages would you share with patients who are considering ACL reconstruction? I think this is the most difficult situation that you face as a clinician because when you're when you if you're a young athlete and you have torn your ACL, you are in severe crisis. And it's very very difficult to come through to a person who is in severe crisis. So maybe I think the first thing is to say that you don't have to make any immediate decisions. It's good to take your time to figure out what treatment is the best for you. And while you do that, you should do rehab because whatever your decision will be, the results will be better if you have had good rehab. After a few weeks and and hopefully months, because I would like to delay this for at least three months, they have usually come around, you know, their situation and they are starting to think about it in in more realistic terms. And and they're thinking about what are the options and do I want to continue with sport or don't I want to do that? And what about my education and what are the implications of, of the different treatment options? When we did a randomized control trial on this and randomized people to have the surgery and the exercise versus the exercise only, and, and we let them exercise for as long as they needed to reach the goals that we thought were appropriate, like having a limb symmetry index of, of uh, 90%, for example, and, and do well in, in functional tests and, and all these things. We found that they were seeing their physio many, many times and actually significantly more times, more sessions in the group that had the surgery in addition. So they saw their physio more than 50 times on average. And I think that is also something that is important to understand for patients, that surgery is not necessarily a quick fix and then you don't have to do anything. You can just return to your sport. So my advice would, of course, be to start with an exercise program, go with it for as long as possible, and then try to come back to the level that you would like to return to. Many people change their mind during rehab what they really want. They want something else. After a while, they get new interests. Some people fall in love. You know, there are all these things uh, that come up. Uh, So I think delaying the decision is good and it's not too late to have your knee reconstructed. 
later um, if that is necessary for what you would like to do. And the aspect that always comes up when we have this discussion is if you increase the risk for other structural damage, damage like meniscal injury and uh, other aspects if you delay the surgery. And uh, that's a really, really difficult question to study because if you have uncontrolled studies like a cohort, you will find more meniscal damage and more meniscal tears in those who delay the surgery because that's confounded by indication. That's, that's a given in that type of studies. And again, there are very few randomized controlled trials, but when you look in those studies or in that study, you, you see no difference. Uh, you will see more meniscal procedures being done after the injury in the group that did not have any surgery to start with. But in the group that had the, their ACL reconstructed to start with, meniscal surgery was performed at the time of ACL reconstruction. So, so when you compare the number of surgeries, they actually are equal in both groups. They're just performed at different time points. As you say, it's really difficult to study these sorts of questions. And that's not to say that people aren't doing it or that we shouldn't do it. It's just, I think it's more a caution that when people are reading the research, not to get too invested in some of these types of studies, that the results might fit our bias one way or the other, but to have in the back of your mind that these studies are really difficult to do. We know way too little about this. One last thing to finish on with ACL reconstruction is that often patients come into this discussion thinking that they must have an ACL reconstruction to go back to their sport, particularly the previous high-level cutting and pivoting sport that they were playing before their injury. What did you find in the randomised controlled trial about return to sport rates after different sorts of treatment for ACL injury? It's very disappointing, again, if you have that belief because there was no difference. There was no difference. And again, I think that's really important information to share with patients that it's, it's certainly not the treatment approach that's going to make you go back to sport. There's a whole lot of other things that happen that influence whether you go back to sport or not. Very, very complex. And there are many, many, um, many aspects to target if, you, um, if you're interested in safe uh, return to sport. A discussion for another day, I think. Eva, it's been wonderful having you share your knowledge and your research and clinical experience with us today. Thank you so much for joining JOSPT Insights. Thank you, Claire, for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.